Zacchaeus. <clears throat> when we hear about Zacchaeus, we kind of our heart warms, I think, a little because we all, I think, at some point in our life have been short. When we were little tiny children, everybody was taller than us. So we have this concept of what it's like to be the little guy kind of thing. And Zacchaeus was so short he had to run ahead of the crowd and climb a tree in order to see Jesus. The other is that we don't really think much of being a tax collector. That doesn't bother us morally. But for the Jews 2,000 years ago living in Palestine, a tax collector was a big deal. This is why. The tax collectors were Jews, and they were collecting taxes and then giving the money to the Romans, who were the occupiers. So it would be akin to, let's say, the Russians invading Ukraine. They take over a town, and they, they, they say, okay, we need tax collectors for this town. If you become a tax collector, you'll receive a good, a good salary. Everyone else is in poverty. You'll receive a good salary. And then the money that, we, that you collect from your townsfolk, they'll go back to Russia. All right. And then on top of that, the tax collectors were also cheating the people, too, in their collection of taxes. So when we hear the story of Zacchaeus, it just sounds really cutesy. But actually, 2,000 years ago, this is one of the greatest conversion stories in the gospel. The other two that are greater than this is Didymus dying with Jesus on Calvary. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Didymus was a thief and a murderer. He was the greatest of the sinners that Jesus saved. The second is Mary Magdalene and her sins of impurity. And the third is this Zacchaeus. He was, in their eyes, a great sinner, being this tax collector for the enemy and stealing from his own kin. So this is a really big deal, which gets at this, that the core of this gospel is about our Lord's mercy, that he came to save Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene and Didymus and you and I. He comes to save us all in his infinite mercy. It begs this, why does he care so much? What is it, what's our Lord's motivation for his mercy? And the answer is twofold. One is what we would assume, love. Well, he must love us. I, I can't rationally think of another reason why he would be so merciful. With all that goes into that, the patience that he would have to have, the, the kindness and all these other things. But the other is the glory that is God. The glory that is God. God in his infinity is glorious. I mean, just beyond our our mind's ability to capture his glory. He's glorious. And the New Testament speaks of glory all the time. In fact, we just sang the Gloria. If you want to know about God's glory, just look at your worship day. Take it home with you read through the Gloria and just look at what we're doing there. That whole thing is to just shower God with glory, with using our words, our very limited words, trying to shower Him with glory, saying these things, we praise You, we adore You, we glorify You, just throwing adjectives on Him. You're so glorious. Because He is infinitely glorious. And His glory saves. And this is some things that I think might help us to understand that. Today, our, big, our biggest sinners would be, say, abortionists. Abortionists are legal serial killers. That's what they do. They just kill babies for a living. 
and it's legal and all of that kind of thing. The other great sinners today would be pornographers, people who produce pornography and make pornography, etc. And the people that, I don't know, pimps for prostitutes or that kind of thing. Uh, and there's many others. The, the sodomites, people who practice sodomy and promote sodomy, etc., these kinds of things. These would be our greatest sinners, kind of thing. And these are people that if they don't repent before they die, they will just go to hell. They'll just be damned, sort of thing. But in God's glory, he is actually seeking their salvation, too, as long with, along with mine and yours and everyone's salvation. Again, because of his love. But the other is because of his glory. Because it gives God glory to save sinners. It represents how awesome God is that he would save me and you and all of the great sinners. It's hard to find analogies that that fit it, but here's an attempt on my part. Satan comes to, to the Lord to speak about Job in the Old Testament, going back now thousands of years. And Satan says, let me break the man. Let me break the man. Let me, I mean, this Job, this Job guy is just driving me crazy with this holier-than-thou living. But, but God, if you give me, grant me powers to come after him in special ways that you don't grant me power to come after others, I will break him. And he, I will deliver him into my hands. And so God allows this. He says, okay, but you can't take his life. You can do anything else you want with him, but you can't take his life. And so then he proceeds to to take the lives of Job's family members and the lives of his livestock and to to spine him with boils and all these other horrible, horrible things to try to break Job. And Job won't be broken. And in the end, Job passes the test. And God says to Satan, you have failed. Your power over Job is now broken. And then God restores Job to everything that he had before, you know, I guess a new wife and new kids and new herds of animals and all of that. And the scriptures say tenfold more than what he had in the beginning kind of thing. It's all a reflection of God's glory. That look, look what I did here with Job. Look how awesome I am that the enemy can't break me or break mine. An analogy that might be hit us a little closer to home is saying college football every year. You've got the, the powerhouses, Alabama and whatever, playing like Eastern Washington University out of Cheney sort of thing, and Alabama just creams them 70 to 0 a year. Kind of thing. They don't, I don't think those two teams have ever played, but, you know, Southeast version of Eastern Washington University or Weber State or one of these really kind of small colleges. And Alabama has NFL caliber athletes going on. Imagine one of those games. So it's Alabama versus the Little Sisters of the Poor. And it's 50 to 0, and it's halftime. And Alabama's just cruising to another 70 point victory, sort of thing. And then in the second half, the Little Sisters of the Poor stage the greatest comeback in the history of college football, and they beat mighty Alabama. What a glorious game! Glorious game for Little Sisters of the Poor. Well, that's what this is about for God. When he captures a great sinner, it's a reflection of his glory, of his glory. Another analogy, insects. 
Let's say there's some ants right here running around, and they're doing their little thing, carrying their little twigs in their mandibles and looking for food and whatever they do, sort of thing. And one of them is a bad guy. And he turns to another one and he mugs another one and he maybe even kills the other one and cuts off his head with his big mandibles. And he's kind of looking around to see if anyone saw that sort of thing. And I saw it. I'm God and I'm right here. I just saw you do that sort of thing. And all the others become aware of what the one little ant has done. And then the one little ant, through various things, repents. And I save the little ant. And the one that he murdered, I've already brought him to myself. And they can see his shining glory. So they know he's okay. But in the end, I saved the murdering ant. And all of them look to me and say, that's incredible. It's incredible what you did. In our first reading today, we hear this kind of analogy where the whole universe is as a grain from a balance. So think of a little tiny grain set on scales, set on a balance. In fact, 2,000 years ago, or even this was written before Jesus walked the earth, this is Old Testament, for them to create a scale that could measure a balance, to measure a single grain, was like rocket science for them. That was an incredible thing to find a scale that was so sensitive it could understand the weight of a single grain. But it says here, the whole universe, billions of galaxies, all created things to God is but a single grain on a scale. He's so immense. He's so glorious that the conversion of a sinner simply reflects his glory for all eternity. And so that's what he's seeking. He's seeking out of true love, a love that's unfathomable to us, the salvation of the abortionist, the salvation of the pornographer, the salvation of the people who organize gay pride parades and and try to advance a culture of pure evil upon the world. Because if they will repent and be saved, then God is that much more glorious. Then everyone in heaven says, look, that person was saved. How glorious God is. How immensely glorious God is that this one is here with us. And this one might as well be me or you. To God, the teeniest sin is unfathomably. The teeniest sin prevents any of us from getting into heaven. Imagine if there was one sin, it was simply this. That's an apple. Don't touch it. And I did. And for that I lose eternity. And that was the only sin of Adam and Eve. The only one. They never sinned again. They just touched the forbidden fruit and they lost it. And then in God's glory, he saved them. And believe me, I and you have done much more than simply touching a piece of fruit. All for God's glory. The Zacchaeus is saved for God's glory, for God's infinity and his goodness and out of his great love for us sinners. Knowing these things, at least for me, I find a great hope for me, and I find 
a great desire to give God glory with my life. For Jesus established the church for the greater glory of God and the salvation of souls, which is to say, I guess we all live for the greater glory of God and the salvation of souls.